Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, thirty six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify. dot com slash work. Shopify. dot com slash work. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello. Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Doctor Jane. <laughs> oh God, this is your friendly infectious diseases buccaneer, Doctor Santosh. <laughs> Pediatric Arr. infectious disease doc and researcher. That was awesome. <laughs> Ahoy, mateys. <laughs> and this is your friendly, but not too friendly, local ER doc, Dr. Ward. You, you mean the doc from the ER? <laughs> How did I miss that opportunity? Yes, doc. You know, judging by our intro, what are we talking about today? <laughs> On this day, we be covering the fine art of pirate medicine. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. So, so I have to say, this for our listeners at home, we all know I love pirates and naval history, but this actually almost began as an offhand conversation between mm-hmm. Dr. Santosh and I discussing, I don't even remember what. No, we were, we were delving into various historical periods and saying oh these guys do medicine like this and then because i said civil war and i said naval and i said oh pirate what you know suck on an orange and don't fall off the starboard bow and i think you got a little indignant and you're like no there were doctors and this man did research (laughs) like i have never seen this literature search is insane josh and you all are in for a treat as this week we present to you doctors of the caribbean oh it's awesome (laughs) did they say anything other than r do you think why do you think think they always said r 
Oh, that's very easy because if we go into pirate slang, yar was shorthand for yes or an affirmative response. Yar and I were both ways that sailors responded to commands because those are very easy to shout and be heard across the deck instead of just yes over wind and waves. Oh, nice. Oh, I like that, yeah. What Um, a positive bunch of people. Can you tell me what a pirate's favorite letter is? (laughs) (laughs) Is is this really, is it just R? No, tis the C. Oh! Oh, nice. Yes. My heart belongs to the sea. Before we get into specifically pirates, yes, this is going to deal a lot with naval medicine. And surgeons and doctors who worked at sea rather than on land are not a new concept. They sailed with Roman warships during medieval times. They accompanied nobility and kings and governors on their voyages and when the spanish armada sailed they had 85 surgeons and their assistants none of who were able to stop the rapid dysentery and typhus that spread all throughout the ships which was (laughs) which was the cause of a lot more deaths of the spanish armada than anything that england france or the weather did yeah infection you know, we talk about Hitler, we talk about Stalin, Pol Pot, uh, all these crazy people, what humans have done to each other. Man, a microscopic bug, black plague, we're talking about flu. We, we can't hold a candle to what these microbes can do to our population. Dysentery, famed from the Oregon Trail, is probably the biggest historical killer over everything except for maybe influenza. Mm. And sickness and disease like dysentery, malaria, smallpox, yellow fever, a whole bunch of others, all created problems on ships. Now, the interesting thing is pirates, unlike sailors, were actually a little bit better off than those who worked on the traditional merchant or naval ships. Why? Well, if you look through some great books such as Pirates, Scourge of the Seas by John Reeve Carpenter, or, well, that's just the one I was reading earlier today, you learn that... You <laughs> that's, learn just that the, that's just the pirate book I had laying around, you know, like we do. <laughs> pirates, on the whole, most sailors very quickly converted to piracy because food was felt to be superior, the pay was higher, the shifts were shorter, and the crew's <laughs> power of decision-making was greater. Well, it sounds better than my job. Sign <laughs> me up. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, you can imagine you're aboard either a merchant ship or a military ship, and the command structure is extremely rigid, and you have just your duty, and, you know, you stick to it, and you have laws of propriety, only salute with your right hand, and only go here, and only go there, and then all of a sudden you have the opportunity to make, what, like twice or three times the money, and wear whatever the hell you want. That's comparable to maybe, I don't know, like working for a big corporation nowadays versus working for a little nimble startup. You know, it's just, you probably get more uh, freedom. A lot of pirate crews were made up largely of deserters, mercenaries, and slaves. So they already 
were stepping up in quality of life. And if you're in charge of leading all these guys who you know are willing to mutiny or attack, you're going to have to have a slightly more democratic method of running your ship. And that includes things like equal shares among the crew with slightly higher ones for those with more responsibility, such as the captain, the first mate, and the ship's surgeon. And in fact, pirates even had their own version of Obamacare. In the event of disabilities <laughs> occurring while in service to the pirate ship, a lot of pirates set up commonwealth plans to be paid to any man in the event of injury or his next of kin. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Now, doctors and surgeons were present on pirate vessels, not always willingly, although I would have signed up in a heartbeat. <laughs> and we should differentiate here, Josh, because we're talking about an era where surgery or chirurgery was really forbidden to be done by doctors as per the Hippocratic Oath. So if you were a physician you used chemicals to heal people or physic. And if you were a surgeon, I think you were either like a barber or a butcher originally by trade, right? Those and kind of the dark arts, yeah. Right. And and according to the, the old Greek Hippocratic Oath, and for a very long time, it was like none shall the two cross. You know, the cutter cuts and the physician uses medication. You are You are absolutely correct in that there was a much more divide, larger divide between surgeons and internal medicine back in the golden age of piracy. And we're going to be talking about an era that predates my favorite historical period. So the golden age of piracy was from late 1600s to mid 1700s. So this is before the Victorian era and okay. how time travelers would amuse themselves before steampunk. <laughs> but I Very have nice. a feeling kind of like if Kind of, kind of like in the ER, or if you're out there in rural somewhere with no specialist coverage, you kind of just have to do whatever ailments they throw at you if you're a doctor on a ship. Here's how valued they were. Again, most of the time, pirate booty <laughs> was split up, was split up evenly with one share per per member of the crew, with two shares going to the captain, one and a half shares going to the first mate, and surgeons or doctors being paid between one and a quarter to one and a half shares. So they were getting a higher rate of pay than other men on the ships, but they weren't always trusted and they were not allowed to vote with the crew. They couldn't take part in the democratic process, partly because of their class background or forced status. Many doctors and surgeons were pressed into service. They were not given a choice. The ship was captured and they were said, hey, you're the ship surgeon now. Or so they could have plausible deniability, meaning... If the pirates were captured, all the pirates would be hanged, but the doc could say, hey, I was just forced into service. Look, I wasn't even allowed to participate and be allowed to continue practicing their craft. And this was an easy out for everyone because a good doctor is not something you want to waste. Nice. Now, the reason we know about pirate medicine at all, and we're going to talk about pirates had one very specialized bit. I should say all naval vessels but we're we're going to specify pirates just you know assume that most of this will apply largely to a lot of at sea medicine as well a lot of them had this cabinet known as a medicine chest and the reason we know about these at all because records from that period by and large are pretty scarce like pirate medicine is still an active <laughs> field of study you can be an anthropological pirate medical researcher which is a job that i didn't know existed and now i want 
Uh, I, it makes a lot <laughs> of sense because if you were a pirate, but not necessarily an explorer, you know, you were just going around trying to make your money and, you know, keep your crew in line, you wouldn't want to keep a lot of your exploits written down in case of capture. <laughs> that would be a pretty damning document to say, eh, it's, it says right here, man, on May the 13th that you stabbed 15 people. And then, of course, if you were in a bunch of battles, if you were fighting back and forth, if you were losing ships because you were in struggle with the legal authorities, there would probably be a bunch of your records that even if you kept them, they'd get burned down, drowned in Davy Jones's locker. Do you suppose a lot of these anthropologists have to go diving? I'm so glad you asked. Yeah. Because that brings us to the very first bit of research and what sort of sparked us off on this entire topic. I'm sure that you're all familiar with the famous pirate Blackbeard. Sure. Blackbeard really cared about the health of his crew, and his ship was known as the Queen Anne's Revenge, and ultimately that ship was sunk off the coast of North Carolina, and it was the discovery of this ship in the early 2000s, circa 2005-2006. Originally, it was not known whose ship it was, and divers started exploring it, and one of the first things they started pulling up from the wrecks of this ship was a medicine chest, which was mostly empty, and a few syringes as well as mercury. And by comparing the records of the ship, so it turns out he did mark down, you know, so-and-so stabbed somebody 15 times. <laughs> and, and the records of the town, we learned that Blackbeard actually held the port of Charleston in South Carolina. I'm sorry, not North Carolina. South Carolina hostage. He spent a week in 1718 blockading the entire port of Charleston, South Carolina, took a bunch of its governors and officials hostage in order to get a medical chest for his crew. And the feeling is that he wanted it so he could treat the rampant syphilis and scurvy afflicting his fellow privateers. Wow. So Ooh. this was a valuable piece of equipment. Yeah. He did so, that with a single ship. That's impressive. <laughs> right? So, in fact, maintaining right. the crew's health was so important that when Blackbeard first turned the Queen Anne's Revenge into his flagship in 1717, he, he had captured the original ship and basically forced everybody to either leave or join him. He tried not to kill, but three people were not given a choice. The ship's three surgeons were told that they were now part of Blackbeard's crew, along with a few other specialized workers like carpenters and the cook. Everyone else was given the choice to sign the articles or be thrown overboard. Nice. And by the articles, you mean his his own code, like the pirate code? Yeah, the pirate articles, which would you could think of as a constitution for each ship. Here's the basic rules that you agree to follow as a member of the crew. Nice. Now, although the captured surgeons did have some medical equipment, largely they were pretty understaffed, especially if you imagine they had just fought a battle against pirates and lost. Yeah. So Blackbeard still would have needed a supply of medicine. So he got some after he spent a week blockading the port of Charleston. And the chest he demanded, value of the medicine chest, has been placed at somewhere between three and 400 pounds, which, accounting for inflation today, is about five or $6,000. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
<clears throat> you know, I was just thinking, it was probably full of just rambunctious young men with no rules, right? And it's it's not it's not surprising that probably some of the diseases f- facing these young men were a lot like diseases facing, you know, college dorms or uh, the military barracks. It's when you force a bunch of people together with high density, these infectious diseases go rampant. So dysentery, if one person catches this dysentery, everybody else catches it. Syphilis, okay, that's a little different. But uh, <laughs> but still, you know. I mean, they didn't have to be boning each other. Um, honestly, The they same could, prostitute, I mean, could, could have, you know. It, it could have been, certainly been the same prostitute. But no, no, you could share things like, you know, hygienic tools. You know, because even though syphilis is bloodborne, the, the one thing we're told to never do is never touch a rash with your bare hands, right? Because you can transmit, especially if there are open sores and things like that, you can certainly transmit uh, that around. So yeah, the big two with close quarters are always respiratory diseases and bowel diseases, or you can say waterborne uh, diseases. So definitely (laughs) anything that would cause gastroenteritis or dysentery, diarrhea, and then anything which is passed by coughing, sneezing, snot. And you shove a too many people together, these illnesses will spread like wildfire. And uh, fire on most, a ship is a bad thing. Most of what we found on the Queen Anne's Revenge dives does seem to be related mostly to treatment of syphilis, which reminds me of that Austin Powers quote, you know, only sailors use condoms, baby. <laughs> not, not in the 90s, Austin. Yeah. They should, those filthy beggars, they go from port to port. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you're you're stuck in an age where you don't know anything about microbes. You don't know how this thing is transmitted. You can just really describe how these people slowly die. So <laughs> why do we know about the contents of medical chests or this? what was in these at all? Well, it's because of a gentleman known as John Woodall. And John Woodall was the very first Surgeon General to the East India Company. Yes, that East India Company. (laughs) And he was placed there on the recommendation of Sir Thomas Smith, who was the head of the company. And John Woodall was responsible for the selection of surgeons, the supply of surgeons' chests to East India men, or everybody on this ship, or everyone on the ships, and for the treatment of injured workmen at the company's small dockside hospitals. Because remember, the best medicine was given just like today, by corporations. (laughs) Now, while he did a lot to improve overall medical treatment for the East India Company, two of his greatest contributions to the history of sea surgery were the creation of the very first English sea surgeon's handbook, The Surgeon's Mate, and one of my resources for the day, and the standardization of the medicine chest that each surgeon left port with. He wrote the book originally, to support the chest and provide detailed descriptions of the various medicines that a surgeon should take to sea with him. So basically, he's saying, okay, you're going to be at sea for this long. Here's the things you need to plan for. Here's how you should pack the chest. And here are things you should absolutely include, probably include, and some space for you to put whatever you think is likely to come up on your travels based on where you're going. Oh, can you read some of the uh, some of the supplies that were standard in John Woodall's chest? Well, if you're going to twist my arm, sure. <laughs> I was waiting for Josh to be like, no, let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) So the medicine chest, this, the surgeon's mate was first published in 1617. Now this is a full hundred years before we're talking about Blackbeard. So it was common knowledge 
at the time, but also keep in mind, and this is the same knowledge being used 100 years later, which shows you how few records we really have of naval medicine from the day. Listed instruments that would be found included 281 different remedies, but of the herbs used, he warned only 14 were most fit to be carried and should be included in every chest. Rosemary, mint, melilot, clover, horseradish, comfrey, sage, thyme, absinthe, thistle, mint, juniper, hollyhock, and angelica. Among some of the tools and supplies he recommended were like nine. a recipe. Right? <laughs> you know, am I, am I preparing for a sea voyage or stuffing a turkey? This, this sounds delicious. Well, mm-hmm. wait till you get... So those were the medicines. But remember, he, his book was called The Surgeon's Mate, not The Medicine Chest. Sure, sure. So let's talk about some of the tools and supplies. Knives, razors, my favorite, head saws. <laughs> cauterizing irons, brands... Forceps, probes, and spatulas for drawing out splinters and buckshot. Syringes. Grippers for extracting teeth. Scissors. Stitching quill. Splints, sponges, clouts, which were soft rags. Cupping glasses. Blood porringers. Chafing dishes. Weights and scales and plasters. Now, if you look at all the things I just described, most of that is really specialized equipment. And this explains why a lot of medicine chests were prized almost as much as gold. Yeah, trying to manufacture something like a syringe, and uh, I don't think there were even real needles at that point, right? So you, you're talking about glass instruments which were precision blown and crafted. Or pewter or steel. So no, they right. actually weren't all glass. Some of them would have glass components and some were just steel. Right, right. So, but I mean... These were not things that you could find or craft along the way. If you lost one of those things, it was gone, gone. So I could completely understand. I mean, even to the point where, like, food and water you could replenish at port. But if you weren't at a place where this specialized equipment was manufactured, you were totally SOL, especially if you were exploring, you know, previously unknown territory. I have to yeah. say, though, gentlemen, what what would you pack in your medicine chest if you were, say, yeah, say starting <laughs> tomorrow, you're walking down Santa Monica Pier and a pirate just comes out of nowhere and say, you know what, you're coming with me. And you got, you got 30 minutes to put, put a chest, medicine chest together. But you're out at sea, so you don't have any backup. You don't have any other options, just like these pirates uh, back in the days where you're going to be out there months, if not years at a time. Months, oh, months and years on the sea. I don't know that I could pack for like months and years because uh, I guess, I mean. Well, because I'm looking at this list and that's pretty much what I would pack. Be basically first aid, splinting material, things for amputations, and wound care. That's probably the most effective and cost effective. No, I, I definitely have a host of antibiotics. There are several that I could think of that are cheap and easy to pack, not intravenous, oral. And then, honestly, I'd have a bunch of oral rehydration salts, just as much as we could possibly carry without weighing the ship down. I'd put in oral rehydration salts to go along with water. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's... condoms, condoms and eye patches. Oh, condoms! <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I was like, "How do the condoms go with eye pat?" No, no, that's a whole other section of the internet. <laughs> if I had antibiosis and I had first aid. I had sterility. That would cover most of what would kill my patients because it's going to be infection and wound care. I don't know that we'd be able to deal with emergencies, for instance, like seizures, stuff that are a little more unusual, diabetes. Like, I don't know that I'd pack stuff like insulin and things like that. Well, I've chatted with, well, modern day Blackbeard doctors. Some of my colleagues work with cruise ships. Oh, sure. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Right. And it, so this is not battle situation. This is, you know, 70, 80, 90 year olds. Sure, sure. Yeah, are, yeah. You Ooh, know, EpiPen. I do EpiPens for sure. Oh, yes. That's a good one. Yeah. Right. But I'm I, I'm intrigued Viagra. by Viagra. your question. Yeah. Viagra. <laughs> That's an emergency, ladies and gents. That is the wrong kind of plank to be walking. <laughs> So. Uh, uh, well, I, I, I was intrigued by what Dr. Ward said here because, um, Josh, I think the principles that Ward and I were thinking of when we put together like a modern medicine kit are the same that they were going off of. I mean, a lot of these herbs were taught were thought to treat, uh, they didn't call it infection at the time, but essentially those were the the tools to either limit the spread of or stop the progress of infection in an individual and the rest of the stuff was to deal with trauma. Well, let me let me tell you guys a little bit more about some of these things. So okay. you're talking about I mean, you're you're asking us to create a medicine chest for modern day a modern day situation for seventeenth century pilot pirates or <laughs> Somali pirates. Because oh, the... <laughs> you know it's like right. much how much money are you allotting? Because these things are not cheap. Remember, we're talking about specialized equipment in an era before automation. Right. So one of the famous pirates, Henry Morgan, from, yes, that Henry Morgan on who <laughs> Captain Morgan is based. There's nice. going to be a lot of familiar names. Uh. He specified in his ship's articles, which have been recovered, the cost for a chest for his voyages in the late 1600s, 1690s or so, he specified in his constitution, that each surgeon in his crew should have 200 pieces of eight set aside for his chest of medicines. This was to be paid out of the very first money they should take on their voyage. Now, the approximate conversion of pieces of eight to pounds was four shillings and six pennies. That means nothing to most of you. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, multiplying and doing all the funky math, it was about 45 pounds. 200 pieces of eight was about 45 pounds, which according to the currency calculator would be about just shy of $4,000 in 2005 currency and probably closer to 6000 today. Wow, that, that, that wouldn't even kind of budget. That, that's not a lot. The, yeah, yeah, not, not in today's terms, yeah. Yeah, but he said, before we even get out and start pirating, every surgeon gets 6000 bucks to create a medicine chest. Now, as I told you, most surgeons were pressed into service, but there are two who took the extraordinary step of volunteering to serve as pirate surgeons, and these were the ones who worked under Bartholomew Roberts, or Black Bart, 
Peter Scudamore and George Wilson. Now, this comes from review of another book, which is just coincidentally laying on my desk. And I'm not going to talk about the huge stack of pirate books surrounding me. But, (laughs) But Peter Scudamore and George Wilson made a point to pick ships to target or tell Bartholomew Roberts ships to target and they said they wanted chests of medicines when the pirates captured ships. They didn't care about hostages, which is how most pirates made money by stealing merchant vessels or those. They went straight for the medicines. Wow. Okay. Now, you might be wondering if most surgeons, you know, weren't standing up volunteering to become doctors, how did you pick a pirate doctor? You know, how did the pirate HMO work? Was it an HMO? <laughs> Is it a PPO? Sure, or or a pirate medical school, I guess. <laughs> this is so much fun. <laughs> um, I'll take I'll take any of those insurance. I'll even take a, a pirate booty. Just no medical. So, sorry, no yeah. Medicaid. <laughs> so unlike privateers who were pirates hired by the government, so a privateer would be say, an English pirate who would only piratize French and Spanish ships, whereas a traditional pirate is somebody who just was out for himself. He didn't care what country. He would go rob whoever was handy. So pirates usually obtained a doctor the same method they obtained all their other booty. When they looted a ship or they sacked a town, they would kidnap a doctor or anybody with a medical background. They were not drawing distinctions between nurses, PAs, you know, local healers. But they would just kidnap anyone who looked like they had basic medical knowledge. They would then offer the doctors the opportunity to sign the ship's articles, and most doctors would refuse. When this happened, the pirate captain, and again, remember, that refusal was part of the understood negotiations. They weren't, by and large, expected to sign the ship's articles. When this happened, the pirate captain would then offer the doctor safe passage on the ship in return for providing medical service to the crew. The doctor would be given a share of the loot, off the books because pirates kept amazing accounting. I know you don't think they did, Santosh. Well, no, but... no. <laughs> I mean, from everything that you've told me, you know, you got to keep your crew loyal, right? Which means that you have to make sure everything's distributed evenly, and you've got to keep a record of that in case someone comes up and says, "Hey, you gave that person more. I'm going to mutiny." You know, exactly. But it's a small business. Small business. Ha- small businesses have to keep. Yeah. You know. Good books. <laughs> For lack of a better word, pretty cutthroat. Yeah! Uh. Now, these these steps of give, paying the surgeons off the books, giving them safe passage, and documenting that they refused to sign the articles, as I said, were done so that in the event the ship was captured by authorities, the doctor could claim to be a prisoner and avoid hanging. The hope of the pirate was that by providing all these protections from the hangman's noose, the doctor would then perform his duties to the best of his ability. And depending on the pirate captain, many doctors would just be released once their services were no longer needed at the first safe port of call. So I do a lot of locums or contract work. This is basically like if I'm, if I'm out for a cruise, I get kidnapped, and they say, okay, well, you're with us, and we need a doctor for three months, and we're going to pay you under the table, and at the end of three months, as long as you keep us relatively healthy you're free to go a little bit richer and no one the wiser nice now when it came to non-monetary booty medical supplies came right after nautical charts so the first thing pirates would be looking for when they sacked a ship gold gold and rum because they're (laughs) pirates (laughs) 
The next things would be maps, because maps were invaluable. They were rare. They could tell you shipping lanes. They could give you future targets. The third would be medical supplies. If pirates had boarded a ship that possessed any medical books or medicines, pirates would take them. And anyone who could read the books or had any inkling of what medicines might be, congratulations, they're the new ship's doctor. That was the whole pirate residency. Can you read? Great. We have a medical book. You're the only guy who can read. You're now the ship's doctor. Man, you better learn fast. When a real doctor was not being pressed into service, pirates usually had to rely on their fellow pirates to do the job. This meant that anyone who had witnessed an amputation in the past or had assisted a doctor with an amputation, again, new doctor. Congrats. You've seen an amputation once? Good enough. What is the saying we used to learn? Uh, we used to say back in residency, see one, do one, teach one, right? <laughs> no, it's was true. That, was that only where I yeah, went? We, oh, wait a minute. Uh, no, no, we all went. <laughs> so many of us, I think, will attribute this huge, very valuable chunk of knowledge that we've gained in our careers during our apprenticeship, during the time that we were practically on hand doing the procedures and diagnosing the things right there, not the book learning stuff. I mean, it's it's a really important to have a good foundation, but, you know, on-the-job training, man, there's no substitute for it. Nope. Yep. Well, I'm glad you mentioned on-the-job training because, let's see, so far we've said, if you can read, you're the doc. If you've ever seen an amputation, you're the doc. Now, often the job of surgeon would fall to the person who had tools similar to those a doctor would use, which means that sometimes the ship doctor would be the carpenter or even the cook. Why? Both of them had knowledge of how to cut things and be specific. If a pirate had been a butcher before becoming a pirate, he might become the ship's surgeon and phew, pity the patient who had to rely on the skill of a butcher or a cook to cut like a surgeon. <laughs> well, I mean, what were you doing back then? You weren't doing like fine, careful surgery, right? You were mm -hmm. hacking off limbs. So you needed to be able to just quickly and efficiently get through the flesh and bone inflicting as little pain as possible and making the cut as clean as possible. So I think that... Who else would have access to rosemary, mint, merlot, <laughs> sage, thyme, absinthe? Well, that would be the cook. Well, but not necessarily the cook, because remember, Ward, uh, if these herbs were considered medicinal and that they were right. really, really important, then... A lot of the time, they couldn't be allocated to, you know, spicing your your turkey or your ham. You know, right. it would be reserved for a cure. I mean, it would be too valuable to be used in cooking. Unlike today, medicines of the past had to be put together similar to how a cook bakes a cake. There would be recipes for medication. So Ward is really not that far off. Nice. And okay. recipes, recipes for a medication usually had a couple different parts. They would have the curative agent water or oil, flavoring, and I'll tell you why in a moment, and the compound used to comprise or make up how the medication was given, like a pill or an ointment, which could be like glycerin or lard. Sometimes wax held a pill together. So imagine you take a little pinch of thyme, a bit of sage, some sassafras, a little bit of blood from, you know, somebody who had previously been ill and gotten together you put it all you mixed it all in a little dropper with some water or oil squirted it into a wax ball 
wound it up, added some flavoring like vanilla, honey, licorice, sugar, nutmeg, ginger, or mint, and that was your pill. Just all of these little medicines <laughs> rolled up into a wax ball. Now, depending on what ailed the patient, the pirate might have to go undergo bloodletting to remove toxins from the blood, blistering where they apply flame or acid with flannel or leather to purposely burn off the infection or injure the area, salves, cloisters, which were essentially pirate suppositories, and the less said about those, the better, or hot, moist cloths used to relieve pain. So again, a lot of similar practices to what we use today, but with much, much cruder materials. And like I said, if what you're being given to swallow is essentially a wax pill filled with a couple herbs and ointments and coated with honey, I don't think you want to imagine what the pirate suppositories were made of. (laughs) If you've got the info, just go ahead and say it. I'll hit the mute button. (laughs) (laughs) there would be essentially liniment or things that could be shoved up if they had to be removed later so you'd have a little yo-yo which means pirates made their own version of rectal tampons to give suppositories nice so you could you could leave it up there kind of let the medication soak in and then pull out the right because (laughs) wax would stop you up your poop deck would very quickly need a swabbing. <laughs> Talked a whole bunch so far about how medicines were made and pirate medicine residency, but what are the common medical emergencies that you would see on a ship, pirate or otherwise? Well, never mind diseases that are carried by rats, weevils, lice, and cockroaches. Sometimes livestock was kept aboard because pirates got to eat, so you may have pigs roaming the decks, you may have chickens. And this would make for pretty unsanitary conditions. Pirate clothing, being on sea for long periods at a time, often wet or damp. Depending on where they sailed, you might have to deal with sunburn, heat exhaustion, hypothermia, exposure. Here's the best one. How many times do you think, when I tell you pirates, the first thing most people think of is, aside from eye patches and peg legs, walking the plank, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. You put up a plank so that it sticks out over the water, shark-infested mm-hmm. water, and you, you're prodded uh, to, onto the plank with the tip of a sword until you fell over and got consumed. Yeah, this is almost an, a total fallacy. Aww. Practically nobody truly made anyone walk the plank. That dates back to uh, the character of Long John Silver in the novel Treasure Island, and everybody fell so in love with that idea because it's so dramatic that that's really when we started getting a lot of the common pirate knowledge most people think of today. The reason that walking the plank wasn't the best pirate punishment is landing in the water pretty much meant the man drowned because knowing how to swim, not a requirement for being a pirate or a sailor. What? If if someone was lucky enough to be retrieved from the water, they would usually held by their heels and shaken to remove any water in their chest. (laughs) <laughs> oh, for, for drowning. Yeah, that's not effective. <laughs> yeah, they just held them upside down and like, let's shake the guys. So uh, water was super dangerous to a pirate. You wouldn't be made to walk the plank because if you fell overboard, that's it. You're pretty much dead. There's no slowing down. They're just like, John's like, I'm right here. And Blackbeard be like, Arr, he be too far gone. <laughs> wait, wait, but isn't that the point? Like you, you want to kill the, the person. Yeah, they would just throw them overboard. There'd be no walking oh. the plank. They would just be like, they would be marooned placed on an island with a single shot. 
that they could use on themselves if they didn't want to suffer starvation, or they'd be dropped off at a port of call. But because you didn't want dead bodies hanging around on a ship, they would either be shot point blank, hanged, and then thrown into the sea, or thrown... Because drowning was actually pretty terrifying. So a lot of times, they would kill somebody and then toss the corpse in the water. They would not put a live person in the water because that would be deemed cruel and unusual. Oh, wow. So, like, out of mercy. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. And even people being marooned, they were given a tiny little lifeboat and just set adrift, figuring they would die from exposure. But like I said, walking the plank, not really... A common one. Now, pirates who visited lands not explored before, looking for islands on which to bury treasure, perhaps, mm -hmm. also encountered additional dangers. So, Alexandre Exquemelin wrote of the, his, the ship, the Hispaniola. The gnats of the third species exceed not the bigness of a grain of mustard. The color is red. They sting not at all, but bite so sharply upon the flesh as to create little ulcers therein. When it often comes, the face swells and is rendered hideous to this view through this inconvenience. So you have insects. Imagine that you're going somewhere and you don't know that mosquitoes even exist in your sure. part of the world. Gotcha, so now gotcha. you're the very first person to discover malaria or dengue or Zika. And this is a disease that even the common doctors of the day wouldn't know existed, much less how to treat. Oh, well, so that sounds these... a little like the bot fly that bit our good friend Susanna up on the head and <laughs> yeah. laid, a, laid a little maggot, doesn't it? Yeah. The, the, the flies of Hispaniola. Yeah, the, these explorers then were actually discovering disease. And I mean, that, that's pretty cool right there. And it wasn't just insects. The plants could be equally dangerous. On another account from the, of the Hispaniola, they found a dwarf apple tree near the shore. Now, although similar to apples back home, dwarf apples are poisonous. And again, these apples being eaten by any person. Oh, should I do that? I should do this in like an old timey voice. Yeah, yeah Let go ahead. That. Let's hear a pirate voice. Ahem. These apples being eaten by any person, he instantly changed color. And such a huge thirst seize him as all the water of the Thames cannot extinguish. He die raving mad within a little while after. Though the tree affords a liquor, both thick and white which, if touched by the hand, raises blisters upon the skin. And these are so red in color as if they had been scalded in hot water. One day, being hugely tormented with mosquitoes, and yet unacquainted with the nature of this tree, I cut a branch to serve me instead of a fan, but all me face swelled the next day and filled with blisters, as though it were burned to such a degree that I were blind for three days. Yar. <laughs> it's awesome. I wonder Probably. if we can figure out what tree that is from his description. And you have dangers from food, you have dangers from... And these are just on places where you land, when you're hiding from the authorities. But now let's talk about actual dangers of being at sea. Oh, Scurvy... oh, oh Josh, before you continue, sorry, I had to look this up, but I found the tree that he was talking about. It's called the Manchineel tree. Native to the Caribbean, Florida, and the Bahamas, I'm going from the Deccan Chronicle here, Mexico, Central, and South America can be found on coastal beaches and brackish swamps where it grows among mangroves. It provides excellent natural windbreaks. Okay, looks harmless, but is the most dangerous tree in the world. Its fruit is nicknamed the Little Apple of Death. 
All right. <laughs> all, so cute. All parts of the tree contain strong toxins. The tree has a milky sap that contains four ball and other skin irritants. If you happen to get it on your skin, it causes immense allergic reactions or dermatitis. Standing below the tree during rain will cause skin blisters. Um, the sap is highly acidic and is known to damage paint on cars. Burning the tree causes ocular injuries if the smoke reaches your eyes. Fruit, is e if eaten, is fatal. And ingestion produces severe gastroenteritis with bleeding, shock, bacterial superinfection, and airway compromise. And, oh, the Carib Indians used the tree sap to poison their arrows and would even tie captives to the trunk of the tree to ensure a slow and painful death. It's cool. Pretty impressive, right? Yeah, so and, and he chronicled it perfectly. So let's talk now about scurvy. Yes, scurvy. <laughs> We've covered it before, but we never really talk about the timeline, right? This isn't something that happens the day after, and pirates would eat fruit and, you know, grab whatever they could, but mostly when you're living at sea for long periods of time, you're eating salted meat and hardtack, which is yeah. <laughs> beef jerky and stale biscuits with a small ration of water mixed with rum to help preserve it. Pirates were known for drinking rum not because they were all alcoholics, although many of them were, but because <laughs> the alcohol provided a sterilizing effect and prevented their water from becoming infected. Yeah. So this was... Grog, this is all the way back to Roman times, right? That wine and, right. you know, fermented liquors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was much better. It was considered much better than water because water could kill you. Yeah. So grog, whenever you hear grog in terms of pirate, grog is just rum and water. That's it. First cocktail, very easy to make. Terribly tasteless. Mm. So scurvy usually started striking about four weeks after a ship left port. So you'd be at sea for a month. You wouldn't have had any produce. At this point, you would have burned through your produce in the first week or two because there's no refrigeration. And you have nothing except salted meat or that tea and toast diet that we see in modern days. That's when you start seeing scurvy. And that's why old people who are left alone by themselves for long periods of time may also suffer some scurvy without ever being at sea. Oh, wow. So you don't need to be at sea. We now know, of course, this is an issue with a lack of vitamin C. Vitamin C is one of those vitamins where you can't just fortify foods with it the way you can AD, uh, to some extent K, but, you know, you really have to consume it in order to be healthy. <laughs> So, yeah, tea and toast uh, over and over for a long time. You won't get the nutrient that you need. Scurvy is a collagen collagen disease uh, disorder, right? And it, it takes a while for your collagen to turn over, you know, the proteins in your gums and your, uh, in your teeth. And it takes about a, about a month before that before that abnormal collagen gets gets built and uh, that's when you start having symptoms right and kind of the interesting things about it aside from you know you bleed easily because you know you don't have the proper collagen to hold your tissues together your bones get weak but the interesting thing that happens is that scars are formed from collagen and you can actually have really old scarred over wounds just open up all of a sudden that's the bizarre part of it when in severe scurvy. The discovery that you could give sailors limes, or which is why they were called limeys in Britain, yeah. or lemons or oranges to prevent scurvy 
wasn't really studied or discovered until the late 1700s, early 1800s, my Victorian period. Mm -hmm. So cures for scurvy in the golden age of piracy included swallowing seawater to purge the illness, forcing someone to vomit, bleeding, digesting small amounts of sulfuric acid, anointing open sores with mercury paste, and increasing the sailor's workload. That one sounds... But wait, the thinking on the last cure is because scurvy was known to make a sailor lethargic. So they thought, oh, they're just becoming lazy. If we give them more to do, it'll drive the disease out. Sure, sure. Shock therapy. That was scurvy. Syphilis, as we talked about early on with you know Blackbeard's crew. Mm-hmm. And among the artifacts recovered from both the Queen Anne's Revenge and Sam Bellamy's Wida were pewter syringes. Not glass, pewter, because okay. glass can break with the tossing and turning of a ship. Sure, sure. And pewter syringes were used to administer mercury to those who suffered from syphilis. Now, as we have covered in previous episodes, syphilis actually, the name of the disease comes from a poem written in the 1500s about a shepherd named Syphilisive Morbus Gallicus, a French poem. And the, the term syphilis wasn't really applied to the disease until the 1800s. So pirates, I love it. Spanish pirates called the syphilis the French pox. French pirates <laughs> called it the Spanish disease. And English pirates referred to it as the French and Spanish, you know, whatever. They all basically blamed the other country and said it's from those filthy foreigners. Right, right, right. Yeah, here in San Francisco, we call it the L.A. flu. <laughs> <laughs> That's so terrible. Well played, sir. Well played. (laughs) So what did a pirate endure if he contracted syphilis? Without going into extensive detail, you would see chonkers form where contact with an infected person occur, and these would often heal, leaving small scars. Six to eight weeks later, the pirate would seem to contract the flu and develop a skin rash, and the patient would soon recover and believe himself cured. But this is also, if I believe correctly, Santosh, when the disease is most contagious. Yeah, so you've gone from, you know, primary to secondary syphilis, and the little bacterium that are around, you still have quite a bit of circulating bacterial load. So, yeah, it's still a problem for sure. Yeah, so an early treatment for syphilis came from people in the West Indies. They used a resin found in the evergreen tree known as Holywood, Now, if you remember, that's one of the things I said was advised to be carried in every medicine chest based on John Woodall. And that was from the discovery in the West Indies that it did have some effect on closing these chonkers and decreasing the amount of time they'd have this flu-like illness. The more effective treatment, though, and when I tell you what it is, you'll very quickly realize why everyone was willing to eat tree bark. Oh, dear. (laughs) Was to administer mercury either orally through a vapor bath. (laughs) Okay. Or in the case of pirates, using these pewter syringes to inject mercury directly into the penis. Oh, very nice. Now, mercury is... uh, Oh, boy. It it is beautifully antiseptic. (laughs) It is effective. It it will kill... It would, in fact, kill the syphilis. Absolutely. Oh, it'll it'll kill the syphilis way hard. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. <laughs> it will also there, kill the pirate. Yeah. <laughs> just a few side effects. Yeah, you know, yeah absolutely. Now, now, here's where we get to have a little bit of fun, because 
mercury, as we said, was actually a pretty effective treatment for syphilis. And its toxic effects, although noticeable, if you were only treated for syphilis once with mercury, you might have a little bit of a grayish cast to your skin or a few neurological changes, but you'd probably come out all right. But how many pirates or sailors in general do you suppose only contracted syphilis once in their lifetime? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to guess that's pretty uncommon, that if uh, if you caught it once, you're more than like, I and I don't know how you got cured, but more than likely you'd either have a relapse of the of the original syphilis or you'd probably get reinfected yeah remember filthy sailors they go from port to port <laughs> so these were people who would be subjecting themselves to the toxic effects of mercury on a pretty repeated basis how repeated remember blackbeard held an entire town hostage just to get a medicine chest so he could treat his entire crew for syphilis right those are some randy pirates. No, no. <laughs> it's, you know, it's terribly communicable. We think of it as a sexually transmitted infection. But, you know, if the shanker is open, if you touch the rash, it will transmit person to person. So this is a bad bug. Yeah. Now, the other, the other treatment or the other big problem I want to talk about, and as I said, we've mentioned a few standard ones that we've covered on previous episodes, like heat stroke, seasickness, you know, just general infections. People were subject to these at sea or on land. I am choosing to focus exclusively on things unique to piracy because, as you may have gathered, I love pirates. <laughs> so, amputations and battle wounds taking over these ships or playing Assassin's Creed Black Flag. When a pirate lay hurt, it was usually because he had suffered from a puncture, like being stabbed, mm -hmm. a slash, or an amputation. Bullets, shrapnel, and splinters usually cause most of the puncture wounds. Being shot with a musket, which those balls were pretty big, mm -hmm. or getting splinters from if a cannonball hit a ship and caused fracturing of the wood and some of those wood pieces would be as large or larger than the bullets whereas a cutlass or knife usually caused slash wounds and projectiles like ball shot or chain inflicted amputation imagine you're minding your own business and a cannonball comes and just straight up takes off your leg right it's right if it's a tiny musket bullet you just get a hole through your leg if it's a cannonball the entire leg is gone sure sure Splinters could fly if a mast toppled. Masts which fell could crush anyone unlucky enough to be underneath it when it fell. Gunners responsible for firing cannons would have burns from spilled gunpowder ignited by a spark. Or they could even be hit by the cannons backfiring. You know, these are some pretty heavy things. Powder burns were mentioned in Jean Lafitte, the famous French pirate. He mentioned suffering powder burns over his left eye that gave him a menacing or grim appearance and caused him to wear, yes, an eye, eye patch. patch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how would amputations be performed? Well, you know, wounded pirates <laughs> would eventually find themselves... Yes? Let's... A wounded pirate would usually find himself placed on planks, laid across casks or kegs. So again, that he's just being put on top of the beef jerky and rum to form a makeshift operating table. An old sail or other cloth, which would not be sterile, might be draped over the planks, because you don't want blood and pus getting into your meat and grog. Mm -hmm. And nearby, smaller flat surfaces or sea chests would hold the surgeon's instrument, and on the floor was a bucket 
where amputated body parts were dropped until they could be carried above deck and tossed into the sea. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. But that's a fast. That was a. That's a fast procedure, isn't it? Because a a modern amputation in the operating room nowadays, well, that takes a good thirty minutes, um, not counting in scrubbing time and prep time, right? <laughs> scrubbing in didn't even feed, factor into it, because doctors. Just your hands in. Yeah. Your hands. <laughs> that was pretty much it. Doctors didn't know what caused infection back then, so instruments weren't sterilized before, during, or after the surgery, and bandages weren't necessarily clean. So you might amputate one gentleman who had syphilis one day and then use the exact same set of tools on another pirate who suffered a gunshot the next day. And, it, you know, at best, they would rinse off the dried blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really wows me because... I mean, we're still a ways away from physicians like Samuelweiss, who were actually, you know, this is a man who had gone insane because people wouldn't believe him uh, that he needed, that you needed to wash your hands, just wash your hands. You know, it didn't even need to be in like super clean water. You just needed to wash your hands. Um but, you know, the risk of infection aside and sterility aside, I love reading about the fact that if you were good at surgery, your measure of skill often was if you had a sharp tool, you were a good surgeon if you could cut off a leg at the femur, like the mid-femur, with as few strokes as possible. That's awesome to me. Yeah, surgeons were measured by speed, much like today. Right. So, the surgeons didn't wash their hands between patients. To tend a puncture or slash wound, they would remove unnatural things forced into the wound, like a musket ball, piece of wood, or cloth, using forceps and fingers. Then, they would wash the wound clean with water or alcohol, pack it with linen scraped from linen sheets that were often used as the same bed sheets the sailors slept on, and they would wrap a bandage around it. If sutures were needed... They would use waxed thread that would usually dangle from the surgeon's lips until it was required. And if infection should set in, the preferred treatment, bleed it out. Yeah. <laughs> How did anyone survive any of these procedures, no, well, I wonder? You have to understand how resilient the human body is, you know, and, and I think everyone should hear this. <laughs> it's a little scary, but we can screw up as physicians <laughs> and sometimes... The body will heal itself. It really will. You know, in, in a few cases, you know, the the immune system can fight infection. Blood will clot. Contrary to what most people believe, the injured underwent surgery wide awake. They weren't given rum or other alcoholic drinks to numb them. And that's for two reasons. One, anesthetics, not a field yet. Not invented. Sure. And the doctors didn't want their patients dying from weak hearts. You know, they needed strong sailors who could get right back to work. Opiates and grog were not given to them until after the operation, so pain relief was understood, but anesthetics weren't. They would usually just be given a stick to bite down on. So, to close out our discussion of pirate medicines, I'm going to tell you how an actual amputation would be performed. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> All right. Now, this is, comes from bits and pieces of several accounts that I researched, the injured man's clothing was cut off and a tourniquet swiftly applied to slow the bleeding. 
The ship surgeon gave the man a stick to bite down on, and while a ship pitched and rolled, the operation began. Remember, you don't have a stationary surgical theater. Right, right. (laughs) While the ship pitched and rolled, the operation began. First, the ship surgeon used a scalpel to cut open the skin above the wound. This was the easiest part, and while the ship would pitch and roll, he would time his cuts to go with the sea. He then sliced through the muscle to the bone with a knife. This would be performed in as speedy a fashion as possible with the man wide awake. Sometimes two or three sticks were required if he bit through the first. Oh, God. (laughs) The first mate who was on hand assisted the surgeon in pulling back the flesh to expose the bone, and a leather strap was then placed to encircle the bone and keep it clear of obstruction. Then... Timing himself with the pitching of the ship, using a saw often borrowed from the ship's carpenter. The pitching the surgeon, of the ship. Oh my god, I completely forgot. <laughs> using a saw borrowed from the ship's carpenter. Oh boy. <laughs> the surgeon would then cut the bone in three to four swift strikes and toss the removed limb into the bucket. Hot tar was then painted onto the bloody stump. Dude. (laughs) Or if not available, the wound would be cauterized with a branding iron. This would stop the profuse bleeding that occurred. At this point, the tourniquet was removed, and two large rounds of linen were placed over the stump and lashed in place with a third strip of linen. A wool stocking cap was then pulled over the stump. The entire operation took only 8 to 10 minutes, with chances of survival, and this comes from a later commentary, chances of survival, 50-50. <laughs> Ooh, those are not bad odds. That's considering... not bad odds. I, I, yeah. See what I'm saying? I mean, I would have thought that much worse. Yeah. Now, the bandages that were used would be plasters, and these were made up. Plaster was just a linen that was soaked in some medicinal ointment, which would could be... The plant dragon's blood, sanguis draconis, with resin made from agave. It could use quicksilver. It could be quinine, which we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And oleums or oils, like St. John's wort. So a piece of linen would just be dropped in a bucket with water, oil, and these various medicines, and then drawn out, and that's what made the plaster. Uh... Also, one of the most expensive, and we can do a whole little mini-sode on this, pulverized Egyptian mummy was a prized medicine for plasters to wrap around wounds. Basically, on the theory that (laughs) mummies are wrapped in this stuff and they're pretty well preserved. (laughs) So, oh my gosh, you're... Uh, the logic is sound, but... They took a body. They took. They pounded it up into a powder. Right. The men would drink some of the mummy, and then they would take the mummy wrappings and use them to wrap their own. Now, this did not happen often because this was very hard to come by. This was not a standard totally feature present. on medical chests. Well, sure. But mummies were apparently pretty plentiful back in the day, enough so that pirates are like, oh, okay, uh, preserve this dead guy. Might help my guy. There you go, folks. Pirate Surgery 101. This is not something that would be necessarily carried out on a ship surgeon, which would be a little bit better stocked, because there's not an ER you can go to that's nearby. (laughs) That's awesome. That's everything I have about medicine on the high seas. (laughs) You know what kind of socks pirates would wear? (laughs) Arg. 
My favorite, my favorite is still in walks a pirate to a bar with the ship's wheel stuffed down his pants. <laughs> and the bartender turns to him and says, Sir, why do you have a ship's wheel stuffed down your pants? And the answer is, R. it's driving me nuts. Well, <laughs> did you hear about the oldest pirate, what he, what he exclaimed on his 80th birthday? What did the oldest did pirate exclaim on his birthday? I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. All right, all right. One more. Yeah. All right. Why is pirating so addictive? Once you lose your first hand, you get hooked. Yeah. <laughs> Yar. <laughs> so when later this month, the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie comes out, I want you to pay very close attention, listeners. Look and see if there's a ship's doctor. And keep in mind, this is what's going on behind the scenes. Yes, you get all those fantastically exotic battles with Johnny Depp and Orlando Bloom. But then keep in mind, you're just giving Johnny... That's why he's always searching for the rum. Right. The man the needs to be in a on. constant yeah. state of drunkenness because look at the medical care he had available. And look at, surprisingly, how similar it is to today with maybe a few advancements. It's true, yeah, yeah. It, you know, you need your equipment to last. Uh, you need it to be quickly and easily available. You need it be non-perishable. And you need everything that you have to apply to, like, kind of as many situations as you possibly get it. So, yeah. Now, of course, I can't end the episode without a just a tip. I had the opportunity to go to the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. Not for the fire festival, <laughs> but, but instead to visit the island and city of Nassau in the Bahamas, which, of course, was a famous pirate stronghold. Hmm. And in honor of this history, the city of Nassau actually has a pirate museum. Nice. An interactive and a pirate museum that is a full interactive pirate experience. So when you first walk in, you're greeted with a recreation of a moonlit dock in 1716 amidst the sounds of lapping water, pirates celebrating in a nearby tavern, who are some very happy actors, oh, yeah. and you get to walk alongside and then into a replica of the Queen Anne's Revenge. So you can actually walk through a model of a pirate ship. You can see what the quarters look like. You can examine actual artifacts and tools from pirate days, such as these pewter syringes. You can look at the articles of a ship and pretty much learn a whole bunch about pirates. And I did go back into some of my travel journals to do some of this research as well, because I remember upon learning there was a pirate museum that I instantly wanted to know about pirate doctors, you know, just in case nice. I ever get to go back in time. Yeah, of course. And I would absolutely strongly encourage anybody who has the opportunity to go visit the Pirates of Nassau Museum in the Bahamas. It's only about $10, and it is open from 9 to 6. Afterwards, you can stop by the nearby chocolate and cigar factory and cover all your vices in one day. And, of course, there is a rum distillery 
a mere 50-foot walk from the Pirate Museum. That sounds so awesome. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, so if you get a chance and you're already in the Bahamas, check it out. Consider what turning to a life of piracy might mean. (laughs) And uh, we'll go from there. In the meantime, guys, please leave us some ratings and reviews on iTunes. I want to take the opportunity to thank all of our listeners. You guys are incredible. We are now up to 2,000 subscribers per episode, which is double what we were a year ago. (laughs) Keep spreading the good word. You're awesome. We love you. And cue the outro. (laughs) Nice. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) Me help. With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories, thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.